Well, I've been waiting for this day for a while. I've got an amazing impact investor on the show with me today, Laura Ortiz Montemayor. Thank you for joining me. Thank you for having me, Rafael. Joining here from Mexico City. Indeed, yes. And I really want to learn about your region because it's not very often I get to speak with uh, with investors from, from Mexico. So, so you started as a private banker, is my understanding. And now you're kind of leading the charge in regenerative investments um, in Mexico. So first of all, I'd love to hear how did this journey begin for you and how did you arrive uh, where you are today? And maybe we can dive into some of the, the key moments. Yeah, thank you. Thank you for asking. I really think my story begins, um, as you were saying, that I, I used to be a private banker. I used to be working in wealth management and asset management. And it was funny because my first year in banking, I was literally inside the crisis of 2008. So anyone that has lived through that um, crisis, you know that it was very unexpected and it was my first year, you know? So for me, I was like a newbie. I was just learning about banking and finance and getting my certification in the stock exchange and everything blew up. And so I, I really needed to learn super fast because I was left with, with tons of um, problems in my hands because all the newbies, we inherited the accounts of the older um, bankers, basically, that were fired. Um, so it was really, really a tough crisis for us. Uh, we had no idea what we were doing, so we had to learn super, super fast. And for me, that experience uh, really gave me, I think, uh, the perspective of being very cautious about whatever investment mm -hmm. advice you could give and being very, I wouldn't say risk averse, but rather just getting as informed as possible to make sure that you weren't selling with the wrong arguments. I don't know if you have a, like a, a English expression for that, but like, you know, selling things that are not usually credible yeah. and never promising, you know, a, like returns with adjectives mm -hmm. <laughs> because any yeah. use of adjectives makes it uh, superlative you know and, yeah. and you really need to sell with arguments and you better sell with education so mm -hmm. i think my my learning from that crisis was basically getting educated myself getting curious uh, being a permanent student and always being you know in a, in a service kind of attitude so i think after that crisis um when when i started like getting better at wealth management i started seeing that my currency became trust and that my favorite activity was teaching. So I started doing a lot of investor education and I really enjoyed myself because the more I learned to teach, the better I learned it myself. And, yeah. and I started, you know, getting very, well, very good at, you know, investor education. And I actually saw that educating investors makes them trust whatever you're saying or doing. And I think it's a it's a good pathway to like the immediate act of the sale, but it's mm -hmm. a longer pathway to earn trust and keeping it. And so people are always fearful of things they don't know. So the better they understand it, the better it is your chances of, of them actually uh, getting into it. So I think after several years in banking, I was like, kind of thinking that I had learned so much, but still, I think I was 
not repeating myself, but like doing the same things I was doing back in the day when I started in banking. It was already uh, almost six years that I, w I had been a banker. And even though I had learned so much, I th thought, you know, like earning the trust of the people was already something that I knew how to do since the beginning. So like on the sixth year, you're like, I'm still doing the same. Like this is no longer in the same way as challenging as I wanted it to. Mm -hmm. So I just was very, very curious what was out there outside the bank, for example, in like private capital investments. And I really didn't know what else there was. And I did have some dilemmas um, like, you know, work culture dilemmas, health and ethic dilemmas within banking. Mm -hmm. um, so I started getting curious and I found Triodos Bank and I was like, wait a minute, if there's a responsible bank or an ethical bank, what does that say about the rest of banks? What does that <laughs> say about the rest of investments, you know? So Indeed. I was like, wait a minute. So I wrote to them and I was like, Triodos Bank, I want to learn from you and I want to, you know, I want to represent you in Mexico. But this was like back in... 2013. So mm -hmm. Tredos, you know, wasn't present in Latin America back then. So I, I did, I never got an answer. <laughs> but in 2014, I found out that there was a course about impact investing. I had no idea what impact investing was, uh, but it was promoted by the Mexican Association of Private Capital. So I quit banking in April of 2014. And this course was in June. So I basically prepared myself like learning a little bit about like the background of private capital in Mexico, what private capital meant. And I went into that course without knowing that it was actually setting it up for impact investing. So it was called the Impact Management Training and it was done mm -hmm. by Ande. So the Aspen mm -hmm. Network of Development Entrepreneurs. And mm -hmm. I was super lucky because that year it was in Mexico City, but the year prior to, to that was in, it was done in Rio de Janeiro, in Brazil, and the year after that, it was in India. So I was super lucky that it was in Mexico that year. And basically, impact investors from all over the world came to Mexico City to do that training. So it right. was like a week-long training, and it was impact investors from everywhere. And I was like, I had the best experience ever. Like, I absolutely changed course or change my path and said, you know what, I want to be in impact investing and this is my cause and, and this is where I should be. And I started asking everyone, like, where should I serve? Like, how, how should I serve if all I know how to do is investor relations and investor education? And everyone said, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Like the, the social enterprises and the impact investing organizations really need investor relations. So I started you know, researching where I could be more systemic because mm -hmm. usually in Mexico, I guess you know that Mexico is a very unequal society as many other societies in the world. Indeed, so, yeah. <laughs> you know, it all depends on who knows who and the people that know, you know, the more elitist group usually tend to do business quite easily and everything flows. But if you don't know the right people, then it doesn't flow. So I was like, how can I do this more systemically so that the network wouldn't depend on like one person, but rather on something more systemic that is more reliable and long-term and less unequal. 
So I started researching and seeing, okay, who's doing this elsewhere? And I met Tonic, the network, mm -hmm. uh, and I also met the SVX model in Canada. I don't know if you know the SVX in Canada, but after you know researching them and Googling them, I was like, yeah, SVX is the model I want to bring to Mexico. And I basically stalked them a little bit online <laughs> until we <they laughs> got a meeting with them. Amazing. So hold on. Just quickly, you said that you actually quit private banking before you had this amazing epiphany experience, sorry, <clears throat> excuse me, at the event um, that was held in Mexico, the Impact Investment event. And um, why did you quit before you knew the path? Did you, had you already kind of, uh, were you sort of exhausted by private banking or did you feel you had to quit to, to properly commit to the course? What, what was the reason? Well, I was already sure that I wanted to quit banking because I mm -hmm. already had too many ethical dilemmas. And I actually had one specific moment um, in my banking life where I had my first panic attack. I right. had no idea panic attacks existed. So mm -hmm. at the moment, I thought I was having a heart attack and I was 29. Wow. Wow. Uh, so I was like, what is happening? You know, like, why am I in my, you know, in, in <laughs> so young, you know, 29 years that I was really, how can I say this? I was very successful at the age that I had, you know, mm -hmm. in the bank, there was my peer group was in average 42. Like the people that had my, mm -hmm. my job were, were usually way older than me. I was the youngest in, in that moment with that kind of job that I had, like my associate was 40 something, you know, and I was 29. So I was very successful in, in the financial terms and like in the bonuses that the bankers earned. Mm -hmm. And there was a annual ranking that was national and I was obsessed with that ranking and I was really, really good, you know, yeah, like in, yeah. as, as a junior banker, I was like sometimes in second place, like in, in the whole national ranking. Wow. Uh, so I was wondering like, why, why did I have that panic attack? And, mm -hmm. you know, reflecting, I realized that it was that I was sacrificing my health, my social life and my values and that I wasn't really, really happy with what I was doing. I was questioning during the, you know, the staff meetings, the national meetings, like we're doing what, we're, what we were selling and the way, like the speed of the sales mm -hmm. was just brutal, you know? Yeah. And, yeah. and I was like, and, and we're only wanting more and more and more. And all we ever know is more. All we ever yeah. know is that we have to do 3X next year. And yeah. You know, the usual, so I saw a cartoon, mm -hmm. this cartoon that is like a destroyed world in the background. And this guy that is telling the other people in the group, it's like, you know, they're gathered around the fire, like a campfire. Yeah. Their, their clothes are shattered. <laughs> and he's saying, you know, we destroyed the planet. Yes, we destroyed the planet. But for a beautiful moment in time, we maximized a value for shareholders and me, that cartoon like really blew my mind yeah. I was like almost crying like I know it yeah. makes us laugh when you see it momentarily but I yeah. you know it really made me cry to mm -hmm. say oh my god I if I die tomorrow because I thought I was gonna die I mean I was being dramatic I perhaps I wasn't gonna die but I mean when you're in the middle of the panic attack you really think you could be dying super scary and super, super scary. scary and i was like if i die tomorrow all i ever did was make the wealthy wealthier mm -hmm. and 
that's not, you know, that's not what I'm here for. That's, that's not me. That's not who I was in high school. Like I, I can't believe I turned into this, you know? So like, I totally went into the glamorous life and like started, you know, thinking too much of myself because whatever bonus or whatever promotion or whatever worth of assets under management and, and really lost myself. So I think that panic attack really threw me yeah. and, and really like moved the floor for me to really rethink. So I was super sure that I wanted to quit banking. I just had no idea where I was heading. Wow. That's, uh, first of all, well done for having not just the intelligence, but the the kind of um, courage really to to pause and to to make that change. But and and I think lots of people listening to this may have had panic attacks. I have, and um, I didn't know what it was, and I thought something's going on. I, very similar to you, I thought I was having like a heart attack. Feels like you're just dropping off a roller coaster. Um, and then, um, you know, ended up seeing a doctor because um, you're so entrenched, you can't possibly think there could be anything to do with, you know, your mind or your your brain kind of telling you, hold on, I'm not happy with what's going on here. You, you kind of maybe have these internal thoughts sometimes that things aren't exactly how you want them to be, but you, you're, it can be super easy to kind of just push that to the back because you're part of a system that um you know the rules of the game and you're 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 kind of you know doing your best to succeed in in that in that kind of system and in that in that game and um yeah sooner or later i think your brain is pretty amazing at at, at making you um making you stop (laughs) in one way or another and (laughs) and do some soul searching because i i I, you're not the only person that i've spoken to who 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 have found that the institutional sort of finance um industry you know is whilst you know affords really you know great salaries and and um, the trappings of wealth and all those things that can come with being really successful sometimes comes at a, at a personal cost so well done on being brave to actually say I'm going to quit banking before you uh, even knew what the next thing was but it sounds to me that 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 was your kind of moment where you realized well hold on I need to align more more towards my values and and my work needs to align to those values so tell so so you suddenly took this moment and um, and sort of it sounds like you jumped in with both feet and what, what happened, um, what happened next after, after the conference, what was the next, um, step in the journey, taking your, your experience in fundraising into this domain? Well, first I want to say, I do think it was courageous, but also in an uncomfortable truth, I do want to say I was very privileged at the same Mm -hmm. time to be able to do so. Um, because at the time, you know, I was I was married. I didn't have any uh, dependents on me. You know, I didn't have any any schools to pay, any mortgage to pay, and I had mm-hmm. saved my banker bonuses to mm-hmm. to be able to like you know go and study my graduate degree or whatever. And instead of going and studying, you know, whatever MBA. Uh, because I mean, I was like really searching, you know, those MBA curriculums, they, they didn't make my eyes, mm-hmm. uh, what's the name? Like when, when your eyes sparkle, you know, <laughs> yeah, your eyes yeah. sparkle when yeah. something gives you an illusion. And it, so the MBA curriculum, I was like, oh my God, this looks super great. Like it, like I saved all this time for, for this, like really? And, and it didn't really move me. It didn't really call, call to me. So I was like, I was like, what if I do a master's in, in life and just apply 
and be a practitioner of whatever I want to do. And, and doing is a great way of learning. So I used up my savings to, to start my own company. So I, I just want to frame it in, into the acknowledgement of I, I would never be an entrepreneur if I didn't have the privilege of knowing that even if I failed, I would have food on my table. Mm -hmm. And I know that's not the reality to the majority of the people. So like, I just want to be like balanced in saying like, yes, there's some courageous decision-making in there, but there's also a safety net that allowed me to be able to jump in it with the two feet, like you mentioned. So, yeah. and, and I guess during my journey of inward exploration and, and knowing now what I know about the impact investing world, I think the privilege acknowledgement is really important um, because of all the inequality and, and poverty all around. I do realize that sometimes we, in this meritocratic system or, or quote unquote meritocratic system, yeah. you kind of think that, you know, the entrepreneurs are kind of heroes, but a lot of the times the heroic piece is brave, but it's also paired with a little bit of privilege to be able to do so. so for sure, yeah. for sure. And, and that really sort of plays out by the fact, if you look at the global impact investment market, only 4% is of that capital is being deployed in emerging markets. And that's something that yeah. we've just got to change. It, it can't, we can't take the kind of same systems and, and approaches that, that, that we've, been, we've been doing Absolutely. into impact investing. Otherwise, we're just kind of layering new problems on, on top of old with a, with, a, with a nice marketing pitch, because ultimately, that's where all the incredible natural resources are, are in parts of the world where you are and I am and another. Yeah. I mean, I'm definitely in a developed country in Singapore, but I'm, I'm talking about Southeast Asia and, and Latin America and, you know, um, all, all kind of interesting areas in Africa, etc. So, um, well, I still think it was a, it was a great job uh, great thing for you to do because you're creating, <laughs> but yeah, you. let's acknowledge it, that, that yeah. it isn't what most people can do and most people's choices are, are, are kind of limited. But I do think... If you're a working professional or, or someone listening to this podcast, that, that, that these stories are, are valuable in that I think a lot of people probably would love to have more meaning in, in some of their roles in finance. And um, what this does show is it, it is possible to make the, make the jump. Absolutely. So, so what, um, yeah, please expand and just sort of uh, help us understand what, where you went from there. Yeah, so basically, um, I, I started calling the SBX Canada and seeing, saying, you know, I want to learn from you guys. I want to learn what you're doing. And they, at the time, were a social venture exchange. So that's the meaning of SBX, a social mm -hmm. venture exchange. So back in the day, they, they have been around for almost 20 years now. So they really... Wow piloted or pioneered the idea of becoming, you know, a reliable institutional market for social and environmental impact. Uh, so they partner with the Canadian government, they partner with the Toronto Stock Exchange, they brought the big corporation movement to Canada. They really were, you know, movers, shakers, market makers, all that you can say <laughs> uh, in, in Canada to really, you know, lead a movement and make it more systemic and and like 
you know, gather supply and demand for impact. Uh, so that was really what moved me about them. And so I called Adam. Adam is the, the founder of SVX Canada. And the first day I called him and, and I had this whole presentation planned that I had been, you know, planning for a month. And I was like, yeah, so I want to, you know, present myself to you and be the leader of SVX Mexico. So you, I want you to expand to Mexico and I'll, you know, I'll bring you. And he's like, what? <laughs> so he, he kind of explained to me that this wasn't, you know, like this massive money-making machine, but rather, mm -hmm. you know, a, a non-profit. Yeah, it's a non-profit. <laughs> a non-profit model in Canada. Yeah. And that yeah. was very um, grant-funded by the Canadian government. Mm -hmm. So their mandate was really limited for Canada and they couldn't, you know, afford to give me, you know, $1.00. For, for Mexico. So mm -hmm. I was like, okay, but I can learn from you, you know? So, yeah. <laughs> I mean, he was super open and super collaborative. And I would say I am absolutely grateful because for the first year, I think he was like my permanent teacher, mentor, everything. So he literally, like I went to Canada for a whole week. They made an amazing agenda for me to meet with everyone like just the first night mm -hmm. uh, you know after so many meetings during the day they were like oh if you want to join us at the bar and at night we have like kind of an event and in the first event that I joined them you know it was like Richard Branson presenting uh, <laughs> you know in this PR <laughs> session about yeah. like they are joining a Virgin Unite for like a new impact investing fund for social mm -hmm. entrepreneurs and seeding them I was like whoa oh my my God, like they didn't even mention it. You know, it was like, yeah. yeah, join us at the bar. We have an event, you know? And I was like, wow, this is, this is amazing. So they they were from the beginning, amazing partners, mentors, and I would say uh, movement makers and connectors in Canada. So I really, in that week, I was like amazed by, by how much I learned in the know-how, but also in the know-who. So they mm -hmm. had a very rich network of you know, institutions, banks, family offices, corporations, government, like you name it, all the, you know, kinds of people that could be an impact investors, even angel investors. So when I came back to Mexico, I was absolutely inspired and I had already an initial network and we went together to SOCAP. So SOCAP is like the social capital markets event that has been around for, I think, over 15 years now. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and it's one of the main you know, impact investing events in, in, in the world. And it's usually, I mean, it's every year in San Francisco. And so we went together and in SOCAP, I presented with them. And so I, I got my first client thanks to them. And I started this model in Mexico about, you know, starting investor relations and impact investing advice mm -hmm. um, for Mexican impact entrepreneurs. And so my first client was a, an agricultural, a sustainable agriculture fund in Mexico that really wanted to connect to impact investors in the U.S. and Canada mainly. Uh, and so that's how SVX Mexico started. So we started as a for-profit model instead of a non-profit because we mm -hmm. didn't have the government funding that they had. Uh, we didn't have the amazing network. And of course, Canada has a lot more depth and volume of impact investors than Mexico does. And yeah. back in that day, I mean, this was 2014. So it was like three impact investors in Mexico or four. Um, you know, so it, there were some pioneers that were that are still here and there are some pioneers that are no longer here. Uh, but I mean, it was a very, very tiny market. So 
besides my having my first client that was for investor relations, I started seeing that there was a need for investor education. And that goes back to my banking days, you know, of like wanting to educate investors to be able to be more transparent about what we're uh, what we're promoting. So basically, I started to do a lot of workshops and courses for impact investors, family offices, funds. I mean, not really impact investors, but regular investors to become impact investors. Yeah, okay. yeah. And I think it was the very first time, I, I'm pretty sure it was the first impact investing course in Spanish ever. Oh, wow. In all Latin America. So I started, you know, partnering with like the Mexican Association of Private Capital. And I started partnering with several others. And during the first years, there was so much appetite in Latin America because there was no one else doing this in Spanish. And right. so when I took the course that was in Mexico City, it was by Americans. So it was by John Collier. So it was like the American version of impact investing that was more like the intersection between venture capital and impact. Mm -hmm. And then I was a, I got a scholarship precisely because of SDX Canada to go to the Oxford Impact Investing Program in yeah. 2015. And I got to see the UK version or more European version of impact investing that was more like the Sir Ronald Cohen version that is more like a yeah. private public partnerships, right? Yep. Like yep. social impact bonds, like all of those. So I think for me, the contrast of knowing the American, the Canadian and the UK version was really good for me to like ask myself, what would the Latin American version be? And where can we be thought leaders so that we don't just copy paste what the global North is saying, but mm -hmm. rather build our own story of what impact investing means applied in Latin America. And so that's how we started investor education in Latin America. And there was so much appetite that we got hired in Guatemala, Panama, Colombia, Peru, Chile, like wow. everywhere. <laughs> and yeah. I mean, during the first years, and it was really fun and it was really cool because we made it very local everywhere we went. We, you know, made specific study cases that were absolutely local. Uh, and, and we talked to the local practitioners and everything so that it could be as relevant as possible. And to be able to, you know, not just say this is what it looks like outside of your country, but rather this is how it looks like in your country. It's already mm -hmm. happening. It's already here. You just need to say yes. You know? <laughs> Amazing. Um, so what, what were the bits that you had to change for... Or when you look at the the structure or the formats and the things, what was it, what what do you think were what was the right fit for purpose um, application in Latin America? So I think it's it's super complex because there's so many layers of of differences, but also the acknowledgement that we are in the global south and mm -hmm. that most of impact investing and most of investing and most of money comes from a global north allocation. Mm -hmm. and a Global North decision-making. So first, acknowledging that the most capital for impact investing that was available in Latin America came from outside of Latin America. Um, and acknowledging that and acknowledging all the power dynamic that that brings. Yeah. Um, even, you know, for the people that do speak English versus the people that don't speak English. So like the availability of capital that there is for an entrepreneur that went to Stanford, even though mm -hmm. they are Peruvian, rather than, uh, you know, an impact entrepreneur that does not speak English and has not been, you know, in a global scenario. Mm -hmm. um, so all of those acknowledgements, all of those um, contrasts, we try to make it 
as inclusive as possible, but also making sure that we're not reproducing the same power dynamics that can be colonialistic mm -hmm. and the same power dynamics that can be paternalistic or, you know, the heropreneurship kind of paradigm. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, this didn't come from one day to the next. Of course, we're like, it's a gradual learning that we got. Uh, precisely because of the re local resistance sometimes that there usually is. Mm -hmm. And sometimes also like the acknowledgement of the intergenerational transitions that are happening everywhere. But particularly in Latin America, you have the, the usual group that has the money in mm -hmm. every country. So Latin America is very unequal and, you know, every country has their story, but the kind of similar backbone is that you have this patriarchy that, mm -hmm. you know, hold the money that are the elite that have the, the power to become impact investors. But, but mm -hmm. many of the current patriarchal leaders currently own whatever corporation or banks or whatever. They're very, very powerful. And they think that whatever they're doing today, whatever it is, they think it's super good for humanity because yeah. they're bringing progress, GDP, and employment to so many people in their country. Yeah. So whatever they're currently doing, it's impactful enough that they're mm -hmm. usually happy and usually, I mean, not necessarily happy, but I mean, um, satiated or satiated, how do you say? Like, satiated, yes, correct. Yeah, they, they think they're, they're impactful as they are. Mm -hmm. Many of them, most of them. And the intergenerational transition is bringing about a very, uh, I would say, complex dynamic of the mm -hmm. younger generations questioning the yeah. legitimacy of their wealth, the legitimacy of continuing the wealth as usual or the business as usual in whatever they are inheriting. So I think this is not only happening in Latin America, it's happening globally. <laughs> yeah. That intergenerational transition is global. But I would say... In, in Latin America, I've experienced, you know, that intergenerational transition firsthand. And it's been, it's been amazing to see how many daughters are changing the patriarchies, wow. you know, the, the patriarchs. So yeah. it's just really, really fun because there's an impact investor. She's very well known. Her name is Morgan mm -hmm. Simon. He's, mm -hmm. she's been, you know, an amazing mentor and, and a person that I really, really learn from and admire in terms of like the intersection of impact investing and social justice. And she says to me that too, you know, that a lot of daughters from the next generation families, those are the ones that come to her and ask for advice. And that's how she started her practice, you know, mm -hmm. in Candid Group. And, you know, funny enough in, in Latin America, it's, it's, it's been happening to me too. So there's a yeah. lot of daughters that ask you to step in as, as an advisor because somehow they feel, you know, they, they feel secure talking to me. Mm -hmm. So I think there's so many complexities playing out there because of the gender part of the next generation part of the talking finance part, you yeah. know? So I think uh, sometimes this, this investor education has so much complexities to it so many layers that yeah. if you really want to go through a transition and if you really want to move capital, you need to address those complexities from the mm -hmm. wounds that are bleeding in Latin America, but at the same time being very conscious about, you know, a narrative that is not antagonistic to the current people in power, but rather reconciliatory because there are deep wounds within their families and groups that they're mm -hmm. already 
you know, dealing with. And if we come with an antagonistic mentality or narrative, mm-hmm. we really don't get much done. This is so true. This is such a massive area where we're all on a journey. But if you think of those families and the, the wealth inside and the, the history, right? You'll, you could have many generations of family that, 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 that have this legacy of, of, of in intensely huge big companies that have created lots of jobs and created you know, um, wealth for as part of um, development in, in regions, but they're also just families. <laughs> they've, they've still got the same dynamics uh, as any, any other family in a way. And then you've got, as you say, the younger generation perhaps just don't not align to, to perhaps some of the ways that that wealth has been created and that create creating a sort of dissonance or, um, or friction. So super interesting. So does SVX end up kind of playing an advisory role in, in some of those structures and, and like, how do you bring people to the table to have those conversations like, and, 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 or, or is it more done at the company level? So I think. So to, to your first question, yes, SBX started in, in the investor education and, and just like by nature, like the natural next step after somebody is really excited about the education that you just provided and for you to open those doors is like, okay, bring me in and take me to the whole, you know, to the whole route. So I yeah. say like we're, we're like the, the ways of impact investing or like the Google Maps of impact investing <laughs> because we, we can present you the map, which is the yeah. education, but we can also present you a route for yourself, mm-hmm. like a route or how do you say, like, you know, the way of yeah. where, where do you want to get to mm-hmm. and what's your starting point and we can help you trace your route. But we can also be co-pilots. So I think... Sometimes as advisors, we have advised uh, families, we have advised even angel investors, but I think our most recurring clients lately have been institutional investors and mostly development finance. So as I was saying, addressing the fact that we're in the global south and addressing the fact that we come from from a colonialistic history and Mm -hmm. that there's so much indigenous wisdom in, in Latin America, so much richness of biodiversity and resources. So in all that uh, global North and South dynamic, there's tons of development finance flowing Mm -hmm. into Latin America. And there's some change makers within those structures that are very aligned with what we're saying. And so they, they have really become, I would say, like systemic change makers because mm-hmm. they start being our students, literally like in Regenera Academy or whatever. Uh, they really like what they're hearing and they're saying, okay, we have, you know, a very square mandate, very strict bureaucracies and whatever, but where they're standing, they can be the decision makers of whatever assets under management come next. So I think mm-hmm. I've I've been very lucky, very honored and privileged to serve um, some amazing change makers that are within those development finance structures that are massive and they find a way to make mm-hmm. the difference and to, you know, break the, the mold of like the paternalistic or a charity case kind of impact investing and really transforming into you know what makes sense for a longer term so i think 
I've been super privileged to, to work with so many people, but really development finance, I think, has been like the key or the biggest players that we have been able to serve. So for Just because example, of the, the sheer volume of, of capital uh, yeah. or, yeah, and, and the desire to, well, we hear about the Amazon every other day, don't we? So I assume there's, there's a lot of uh, um, attention and eyes on, on like how, how we can divert more capital to preservation of, of um, our natural resources, basically in Latin America. Yeah, and I think we learned a lot from UNDP Biodiversity Finance Initiative. Mm -hmm. They were one of our clients in 2017 and 2018. Mm -hmm. And basically, the Biodiversity Finance Initiative really opened our eyes. We had no idea about conservation finance before that. We right. had no idea about, you know, there was a split, a massive split in, in Latin America. Like there was the social finance that was mostly, you know, human centric. Mm -hmm. And there was like all the environmental NGOs and they were in separate events and in separate networks and they didn't even know each other. So like the social and environmental impact was absolutely split up. I don't know if it's only in Latin America or it's the same case in the rest of the world, but we saw that they weren't, you know, acting together. And so the environmental NGOs were going to like some networks and some events. And when we started doing uh, the advisory for UNDP Biofin, we realized we needed to build a bridge for them to know each other and to mm -hmm. start bringing the environmental NGOs to the social finance events and, and vice versa. And so we started creating precisely like the first, um, the first course for the environmental NGOs and the conservation NGOs to know and learn about impact investing. And they said, after the first course, they were like, wow, you just opened a massive door that we had never known that existed. And, and donations were really, um, you know, decreasing massively in Mexico because of some fiscal changes. And so since they didn't have the same donor money they've had for decades before, now they needed urgently to find, you know, elsewhere some, some money. And so they started saying, okay, we have all of these projects that are, you know, amazing projects that get, bring you to productivity, but from productivity to actual profit or even investability, there's a huge gap, right? So we started working with them to see what was the potential, what was the investment readiness gap, and what was the potential in the biodiversity projects to be able to become investable. And so we started like, you know, collaborating in like, how do we construct a narrative where biodiversity is no longer seen as a charity case, but rather biodiversity seen as everyone's only life insurance. <laughs> and you actually need to pay for insurance, right? For life insurance. Yeah. And instead of seeing the, the big names of insurers that are usually big institutional finance insurers, we actually start seeing the smallholder farmers and the land stewards as the insurance that we need to pay. So that's right. where the holistic approach of you know, addressing social and environmental impact never in a separated way, but rather mm -hmm. in an indivisible way in saying we cannot save the planet without yeah. the communities that, you know, that steward it. And we cannot save communities without the air they breathe, the water they drink and the fertile land that feeds us. So mm -hmm. that's when, you know, we started to shift absolutely and focus in the intersection of biodiversity regeneration climate finance as a way to, to bring in like the massive amounts of shifts of capital that are naming themselves green yeah. and social impact. 
Uh, I absolutely love what um, what you're doing, and what and, and I love the that um, the mission of SVX is let capital serve life, not rule it, and that kind of plays perfectly into what you were just describing there, which is we create capital structures um, for returns and for <laughs> to to make rich people richer, but actually we're we're in a nested ecosystem which relies wholly on the environment. So it's great if we could create, there's no point creating environmental change or, or uh, you know, doing a biodiversity project if you don't have the local people engaged in that because it won't, it won't work. And what, what you've just described is, is completely accurate where we're just, it, there's so much changing at the moment and it sounds like there's so much happening in your domain that at least capital is kind of coming in and now the structures and the frameworks and the approaches and the teams and the advisors and, and the investors are, are starting to get much more uh, better understanding of how these different in, um, complex systems interplay to one another. Because uh, you call yourself, a, I think, a living systems thinker, a mompreneur. I think everyone knows what a mompreneur is, but, but um, <laughs> you know, uh, living systems thinking, is, is that something you, you know, have tried to embed in everything that you do? Oh, that's a very, very good question. I think I'm still a student because I was educated, you know, in the in the typical, I would say, neoliberal dynamic mm -hmm. that is linear, that is patriarchal, that is colonialistic, and that is, yeah. you know, the, the, the usual way of seeing the world as separate, you know, separating humans from nature, separating yeah. men from women, separating... Yeah. Uh, you know, and, and always basing the economic system in scarcity. And, mm -hmm. and so saying you either save, you know, the planet or you make money. So yeah. that kind of paradigm that always makes us crave for more. And so yeah. it keeps us unsatisfied. It keeps us unhappy and makes sure that we feel insecure so that we always crave for more. Whatever we have, we crave for more. And yeah. I think For, for me to actually transition into living systems thinking, I had to understand first, acknowledge my, my, the, the layers of my identity that embodied capitalism and wow. all of those, you know, colonial uh, mentalities. And then I had to shed a little bit of my identity to be able to relearn a new paradigm. And so living systems thinking, what it says it's it's really about you know ecological intelligence it's really yeah. about addressing the fact that we're eco-dependent and interdependent and embracing complexity because i think the reductionistic mindset wants to reduce for example a ecocide into climate change and they yeah. want to reduce climate change into carbon emissions so yeah. all of that is a very reductionistic mentality that thinks that the planet works as an equation that you need to optimize for reduction of carbon emissions and that's yeah. not you know that's not at all how nature works nature is yeah. inherently complex and and so ecocide is is really way bigger <laughs> than yeah. climate change and climate change is really just a symptom so living systems thinking makes you zoom out think way bigger think always from the whole which is mm -hmm. the biosphere and and really always look at things as events and then address what's the causality as of those events instead of reacting immediately to those events. And so 
there's like, for example, in systems thinking, there's an iceberg model. I don't know if you've ever heard it, but like the tip of the iceberg, the one that you see is usually an event, which is a symptom. For example, uh, imagine a corruption case or imagine a greenwashing case or imagine mm -hmm. the, the fires in New York a week ago or two weeks ago. Yeah. You know, those are events. So if you only look at the event, you're looking at the tip of the iceberg. But if you look at the bottom, like, uh, you know, you look below the water, submerged, yeah, that you, don't see. you see that there's patterns to those events, that mm -hmm. it's not an isolated event, but rather a pattern. And then from patterns, you see that there's inherent structures that makes those patterns exist. And from structures, if you go deep, deep down, the bottom of the iceberg is mental models mm -hmm. that usually you know, uh, reinforce those structures that reinforce those behaviors that reinforce those patterns that makes those events not be isolated, but rather be a trend. So the, the deeper you go, there's, there's a phrase by Friedhof Capra that is really mm -hmm. the systems thinker teacher that says that if you follow all problems upstream, you get to one problem and that problem is paradigm. So the, mm -hmm. the mental model or the paradigm where we're right now in this economic system that makes us want to crave unlimited growth in a finite planet mm -hmm. and makes us all want more, that's the inherent problem. And so even if we stop one symptom or the other, we're not going to the, you know, the, the cause. So I think we really need to stop and think about the zoom out and the bigger picture, which is the economy as a living system and then address what are our mental models that are reinforcing those results as, you know, the hell postcards that were the pictures of New York two weeks ago. But those mega fires have been happening everywhere else. But when they happen in New York, they become important, right? Yeah. <laughs> now, like, now the people... When it's on your doorstep, yeah, exactly. <laughs> when the news is somewhere far away and distant, it's uh, easy not to worry about a landslide or an earthquake yeah. or something, right? And But when it's a, yeah, a fire right on your in your neighborhood, it's, it's very different. And um, I guess that's a very human trait as well. So, look, you're, you're someone that's, that, that started in the system that is now transforming or trying to transform the investment paradigm into more regenerative practices. I know you're working on uh, a, another project uh, called Regenera Ventures. It deserves probably its own separate conversation because um, it, it uh, you know, there's so many interesting things that we've already discussed, but can you just give us some background on what you're building there? Yes, so in our work, of advisory, we've had the privilege to get to know USAID, the, so the U.S. Development Corporation in Mexico, uh, very well. And, and so in 2020, we were convened by USAID precisely during the start of the pandemic to co-create. They, they wanted to bring attention to three landscapes in Mex Mexico, three rural landscapes, which is Chiapas, Oaxaca, and the Yucatan Peninsula or Mayan Peninsula. So mm -hmm. these three landscapes are some of the most biodiverse in the continent, but also some of the most biodiverse in Mexico, some of the richest, but also the, the ones that have suffered both the most deforestation plus the most economic vulnerability, so massive poverty. And so on those three landscapes, they wanted to reflect and collaborate at the beginning of 2020 to say, okay, what can we do here? Let's brainstorm and see how much of a business case do we have for like a blended finance movement for these landscapes. 
So basically we came up with a consortium that is implemented. So there's a $9 million USA donation. The consortium is called Sustainable Landscapes Ventures. And mm -hmm. it's the lead implementer is Conservation International Mexico, which is an amazing partner because they have formed relationships with these communities and they are living in these landscapes for decades. So it's not a relationship that started, you know, a while ago, like in, in like a minute ago or a week ago, but rather really long-term relationships, really long-term validation, recognition of the local communities, of the work that, you know, Conservation International has been doing there for a while. So as partners, they really bring the, the relationships with the communities, the trust building, and of course, the social and environmental impact decision making. And so SBX, we are the partners that are leading the blended finance approach. So we're helping not only find and source, like what are the investment opportunities, but also bringing the investment readiness portion and of course the investor relations. So what we've been mm -hmm. doing, you know, all the time in SBX, but really focused in these three landscapes funded by, the, by this USAID um, consortium and really in collaboration with several partners. So MinkaDev, which is like the commercial entity that is helping uh, the landscape organizations. Imagine, you know, a coffee cooperative. So there's like 900 producers. They're exporting already. They have some certifications for organic and, and you know, some other fair trade certifications. But even with those two certifications, they're still earning per farmer less than $2,000 a year. Wow. Imagine that. So That's insane. Like... What's happening in the world? Like the fair trade yeah. certification, it's fair to whom? You yeah. know? So basically, you still have, even with all those good intentions and amazing certifications, because they're really mm -hmm. hard to get, it's not cheap. Like yeah. they, the, the farmers are paying for those certifications. Uh, so even if they're doing amazing land management, even if they're mm -hmm. restoring the soil health, even if they're doing amazing work, like they are still earning the least. So what we started realizing, so this consortium, it, it helps us originate, you know, pipeline of organizations, but we are finding like, what is the potential for them? What is the potential to break this cycle? How can we break the cycle? And how can we make sure that we're not only bringing, a, you know, capital to make more of the business as usual, but rather capital that really helps them transition and to what, right? So Basically, we've developed an investment thesis and we've been designing this at the same time as we're facilitating the blended finance. So right. Regenera Ventures is a fund that is born within this Sustainable Landscape Ventures Consortium mm -hmm. so that we can learn from the facilitation of the, you know, the, the impact investments that we're helping co-create right now because we've already helped co-create at least nine transactions. But within those co-creations, we've learned what is most needed. And so there's tons of debt going into the smallholder farmers globally. And if you mm -hmm. see like the impact investing, right, you know, the gene usual uh, surveys and all of that, yep. there's tons of smallholder farmer debt. So debt for the smallholder farmer is something that is already done in impact yep. investing. It has been done before and it has been done for decades. The thing is, Debt in Mexico is super expensive and some farmers are very adverse to debt because there's usually debt for like survival one or two years of, of the next uh, 
cultivation period. Yeah. Uh, but usually that is not coming. It's usually that that comes at a high cost and that is not comprehensive of production cycles. Um, and, and it's usually based on one commodity. So I'm not going to name names, but there's tons of, you know, impact investing funds that usually rely on the invoice that you're that the smallholder farmers are bringing from their exports. Mm-hmm. And basically, they're just, you know, trade finance. So that's yeah. a super short way, you know, the, you as an impact investor are not really risking. Mm-hmm. You're really just financing their exports. And, and it's a very safe commodity to finance coffee. Yeah. So instead of us financing the usual, what if we finance that transition? And what if instead of seeing, you know, those smallholder farmers as, as the most vulnerable, we rather see them as the most needed part of the puzzle and as the most resilient because they've been through so much. They've been the ones that are subsidizing corporate profits for decades. And they are really the biggest philanthropists here. Uh, but they're paying with their lives and they're paying yeah. with their livelihoods and they're paying with the highest risk to climate. So because, you know, with like, for example, I was uh, two weeks ago with, with two young farmers that lost everything to a fire. Everything, you know, two hectares. And for them, two hectares is, is everything they have. So, you know, there's, there's really tons of potential within these smallholder farmers, mm-hmm. uh, not just in their mentality and, and entrepreneurial uh, you know, uh, ability, but rather the potential and wisdom that they've inherited through generations of like land management and the biocultural relationship of them being the stewards of biodiversity. So the local biodiversity is really part of their identity. Of course, I don't want to like say that everyone is like that. In the same landscape, you find some people that are in the conventional, you know, a monocrop paradigm yeah. and some people yeah. that are in the biodiverse paradigm in the same landscape <laughs> within the same yeah. community. But, you know, we've been partnering with the ones that are really the ones that want to bring biodiversity back. And, and it's, uh, it's just amazing, like the, the, how much they know about forest regeneration. Like mm-hmm. sometimes we think they need to, you know, receive technical assistance from us or like technical <laughs> advice of like from whoever. And, and really when you get down to the, the ground, you see like, wow, there's so much we need to learn from them. So when I say we, I mean we, the people that work from the desk, need to mm-hmm. learn so much from the people that work from the soil. And I think, you know, just that part for me is super important. So part of our theory of change for this whole project is to have a two-way learning, you know, like uh, there's investor learning journeys that we're hosting. So basically, so that the communities are not the only ones learning and receiving technical assistance, but rather the investors and the donors having the opportunity to get their hands on the soil. The, the name of the investor learning journey is literally Manos a la Tierra, which means hands to the soil. Like get your hands dirty, reconnect yeah. with the landscape and revalue, revalue this treasure. Because I always say, if you put your, your finger on your nose right now, you're touching mm-hmm. the best technology ever that has been discovered to recognize fertile soil. So the human oh. nose... Yeah. It's the most advanced technology ever to recognize fertile soil, even if we're not farmers, even if we're not scientists or bio, uh, biologists. Yeah. Because 
nature made us, like our inherent intuition, our DNA, we are made to be partners with soil. That's like humanity is made to be partners with soil. Putting our hands on the soil really makes us feel a realization that nothing else can give you. You know, we are made to be partners with soil, like literally from inside out. Mm -hmm. And when we really go back to those roots, <laughs> yeah. we, we really, um, we are born again. So mm -hmm. I think we're bringing the opportunity for investors and donors to really reconnect with the soil, reconnect with the landscapes, get to know the knowledge and wisdom from these communities so that we really change the power dynamics of finance and we really become, you know, investors at the service of life. Wow. Uh, I mean, I'm always blown away every time I have a conversation with you, Laura. Uh, it's so cool. And I can testify um, that firsthand you, because um, we met at Change Now, fantastic event in Paris, and uh, you were pitching uh, Regenera to, to an audience. And the first thing you challenged them with was, uh, when was the last time you had your hands in the soil? That's and right. <laughs> it's, uh, it, I don't think there's many people in finance that, that actually gardening, maybe there's the odd gardener, but uh, in general, we're so disconnected. We're so compartmentalized. We're so in different various silos, be it in our career or whatever. Actually, it, it's very true. We need to reconnect. What better way to reconnect with nature than actually get your hands dirty, plant plant a tree, do, do you know, get, get go meet some of these um, incredible people that have been toiling and creating the, the food that's on our on our table for for generations because it does it does really reconnect you with everything and so this is the next step for you this is the the evolution or well, I mean SVX obviously is still gonna do its thing but you're you're working uh, to get Regenera up and running yeah so basically uh, this consortium is from 2020 up until 2025 okay. so this is like the blended finance partnership and Regenera Ventures was launched just this February of 2023. Wonderful. You know, we really have this, this investment thesis of making sure that we finance this transition and mm -hmm. making sure that we, that we partner, you know, with the land stewards and see them as the potential that they hold instead of indebting them. So, or making that go into that, you know? Yeah. So, so we think uh, that for us, this is a new adventure because it's the first time that we have assets under management, even though we have our first allocation in Colombia. Mm -hmm. uh, but that's on behalf of the Global Affairs Canada. So, I mean, you know, so we have two mandates currently that are focused on the intersection of biodiversity regeneration, rural finance, climate finance, and gender. So both in, in our work in Mexico and Colombia, we're doing, we're focused on the same thematics and we're learning a lot of cross-pollination lessons from both countries. Uh, but right now, Regenera Ventures is starting to invest only in Mexico. Perhaps later we can expand to Colombia because we are building you know, quite a network there and, and some learnings that, that could be crucial for, for an investment allocation later on. Amazing. Very quickly, we're running out of time. I just wondered what, um, you know, have you seen in since, because really, I guess you made the jump in around 2014. Have you, have you seen, or 2013, have you seen the, uh, the ecosystem really evolve in, in Mexico and beyond? You yes. Know, should, should we be all feeling hopeful about everything? Well, I mean, hopeful always. You know, there's a, there's a book by, by Johanna Macy that is called Active Hope. Mm -hmm. So we must be active hope. Like there's, it's, it's an absolute moral imperative 
that mm-hmm. will be active hope. I have seen an evolution. What I've seen is that this mainstreaming of impact, not just going, you know, impact investing is no longer present just at the impact investing events, but rather the mainstream finance events. And for me, that is massive. Uh, the first time I went back to the bankers that I knew and told them about impact investing, green finance, climate finance, ESG, they were literally laughing their heads off. <laughs> and they were like, you think the whole world is going to turn into Mother Teresa. You're like super naive. You have no idea what, you know, hardcore finance is. And, and there's, there's no way that responsible investing or whatever is going mainstream. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, some years later, <laughs> what you see is that really there's a massive amount of money and, and people and customers and retail investors that are asking for this. They're asking for it. Still, even though we have evolved. There is tons of, I want to say, very uh, superficial progress mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. that is labeled as a victory. And that right. is really scary for me. Mm-hmm. That is super scary for me because I don't want to pat ourselves on the back saying, oh, yeah, there's trillions and billions in green finance or in green bonds or in like, uh, you know, responsible investments. Because when you really, you know, give a double click at yeah. what is actually invested, you see that it's it's really a lot of labels that have been complied with that have nothing to do with the results in the biosphere. Absolutely mm-hmm. nothing to do with the biosphere. Like there's no less emissions because of the yeah. trillions in green finance. It's just yeah. the labeling that has been going on and the awareness. So labeling and awareness will not get us <laughs> far mm-hmm. enough. So what I what I want to say is there has been an evolution. Yes, there has been a growing awareness and consciousness. Absolutely. But I wouldn't pat ourselves on the back about progress because of the billions and trillions into, quote unquote, green finance, because that green is not green enough, because that green still is rely, relying on this economic system that is driving to unlimited growth in a finite planet. So if we don't get to the root of like the change of the whole economic system and the whole monetary system, and we're still relying on debt, and we're still, you know, because every single dollar that is printed is printed through debt, and there's an inherent interest that we need to find somewhere, a squeeze out of nature and the social capital to be able to pay back. So if we don't break that, we're still in the same you know, spiral, downward spiral, I would say degenerative spiral. So as Buckminster Fuller said, you know, you cannot uh, fight the current system. You rather build a new system that makes the current one obsolete. You're doing such incredible, um, amazing work, Laura. I'm, I'm really grateful that you took the time out to share some of your journey and the work that you're doing with our listeners. What's the best way for people to get in contact with you if they've been inspired by what you're saying or feel that they can be of help or in, in your work? Well, professionally, I'm, I'm a very frequent user of LinkedIn. So in LinkedIn, you can find me as Laura Ortiz Montemayor. Uh, I usually use LinkedIn a lot. I used to be on Twitter a lot before Twitter changed so radically. 
<laughs> so yeah. now I don't find Twitter as useful as I used to. And also I've got several uh, Medium posts that talk about several of the topics that we mentioned here. For example, regeneration as an, the impact investing imperative, biodiversity as the ultimate investment opportunity, uh, inversiones al servicio de la vida, which is the investment at the service of life. And there's several stories there in the holistic impact investment spectrum. So there's there's a lot going on in, in my Medium post, in my LinkedIn. There's tons of stories there. And, and also in the SVX Mexico Instagram and the SVX Mexico YouTube. And I'd love to invite you when we um, get into some deep conversations on these topics uh, with you and other, other pioneers in this area, because it's absolutely where we need to be focusing. So it's been wonderful. Thank you for taking the time to speak to us. I hope it's been worthwhile for you. And um, uh, I look forward to following your brilliant career. Thank you so much, Rafael. And I hope we meet again.